Nexus Church is all about cultivating an authentic Christian community where old and young alike journey with Jesus and are transformed by the gospel. May we be challenged and inspired by the power of His Word. Oh man, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Feels so great to be amongst family. Feels so great to be out of Alice Springs. Um, yeah, nah, pretty cool, pretty cool. Really appreciate you guys coming out tonight and I uh, really appreciate Pastor Nathan and Beck having me once again at Nexus Church. It's awesome to see and hear what God is doing in your midst and it's our joy just to follow you from a distance back in the desert. Your news floats out to us. So keep up the good work, church. We are thrilled, thrilled with uh, what God's doing in this house. And uh, my beautiful wife, Danielle, is with me. So I'm going to introduce you to her in a second. But uh, just in case you forgot, this is my family, my daughters. Uh, see see uh, next to that ve- very handsome bearded gentleman in the photo there, uh, to your left of me is my beautiful wife, Danielle. And you won't recognise her tonight, so you'll think, is that his first or second wife? She's my first wife. And she, after 22 years, still my first wife. And, um, but in that haircut she's got there, I, I learned how to do an A-line bob on YouTube. <laughs> And in Alice Springs, there's no good hairdressers, so I gave her that uh, as, as a gift. And it grew out, it grew out, I know, and see, no, only the women in the house know just how difficult that is. Because you can go to any old hairdresser and get an A-line bob that still makes you look like the mop in the corner of the cupboard, let me tell you. And, but to get a good one, Danielle, see, if you think she should appreciate her husband a little bit more, just give us a, give us a little something, something. All my brothers in the house. Uh, stand up, Danielle. This is my beautiful wife, Danielle. She has been here maybe once before, but I get to come a lot, and she doesn't always come, and uh, it's pretty cool. So this is my family. Uh, next to me on the other side is Molly. She's our middle daughter. She's always wearing cat ears, but she's got reindeers on there because that's our really old Christmas photo. How many families know what I'm talking about? Just get one photo every year. Why well, well, do it any other time but Christmas? And uh, my other daughter on the, next to Danielle is India. She turned 18 two weeks ago. Amazing girl. And uh, she is just about to move to Brisbane to study events and business, a double degree in business and events management, actually. That's how traumatised she is growing up in our house. <laughs> she wants to do events now after being raised in a ministry family. Would you just keep her in your prayer? You know, I've been saving for therapy bills and all that sort of stuff. And our youngest there, Lily, she's 14 years old and she's incredible as well. So they said to say g'day. I'm just showing you them because they're at home in Alice Springs right now. We've been here for a conference and all sorts of stuff. And uh, now that we've got a big 18-year-old in the house, we Danielle and I came over for like second honeymoon, didn't we, Danielle? Just nod, make me look good, babe. It's good. We've still got the heat. We've still got the heat. And uh, the kids are back home in Alice Springs, so I just wanted to show you them. That'd be pretty cool. Well, why don't we open up God's Word, hey? I want you to turn, if you've got your Bible, turn to Psalm 139. And we're going to read this, then we're going to talk about some stuff that'll seem like it has nothing to do with this, and then hopefully we'll circle back and find out what it has to do with with this psalm 139 i gotta tell you for a little while i had a psalm 139 allergy like i sort of only ever hear this psalm rolled out when we want to beat up on the the pro-choice crowd or the abortion mob and uh, so i sort of have stayed away from it for a little while because it's sort of been weaponized this psalm and used to uh to to kind of help the church use it as a flag to wave for everything that we don't stand for the things we stand against but there's some amazing content in this psalm and i just hope tonight that we can open our hearts open our minds and be shaped a little bit by god's word aside from the political and legal and other moral arguments that we find ourselves fighting as a society listen to what it says you have searched me lord and you know me you know when i sit and when i rise you perceive my thoughts from afar you discern my going out and my lying down you're familiar with all my ways for a word is on my tongue you lord know it completely you hem me in behind Before you lay your hand upon me, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, and if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light will become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you, Lord. The the night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully 
and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed bodies. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand when I awake I am still with you. You know, Scripture opens in Genesis chapter 1 with these powerful verses that in the beginning God made the heavens and the earth. And it's an incredible picture because the earth was formless, it was void, it was without shape, and yet God's Spirit hovered over the face of the watery deep and then God said, let there be light. I love it what it says in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew it says, and God said, light be and light was. It's incredible picture of creation, this incredible picture of this wonderful, powerful God creating a world out of what did not exist. There was no pre-existent matter. There there was nothing in existence except that it existed in the imagination of God. And God is so amazing, so powerful, so transcendent, so, so awesome that God can imagine something that doesn't exist, which is a feat in and of itself. And then God can speak that non-existent product of his imagination And that it will bring itself into reality by the activity of his spirit. Now, just think about that. Don't don't you wish you could do that? Don't you should be like, dishes, be clean. And boom, my house became a display center. (laughs) It's pretty good. It's not a display center. The image we have for God in Genesis chapter 1, he is called Elohim. Elohim. Elohim is the Hebrew name for God. And it is a Hebrew word for raw, transcendent power. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created. And this word Elohim is a Hebrew word for maximum unmitigated power. Imagine the word power. Imagine it in bold type. Imagine it underlined. Imagine it italicized. Imagine it flashing. Imagine like in red, in red ink when everything else on the page is in black and white. It's in this emphatic position to give us an understanding of a powerful and all-powerful being the likes of which we could never conjure up in our own minds because God who is infinite barely fits inside this finite scale of mine. What about yours? Maximum power. In Hebrew, the word Elohim is the highest, most powerful word that you can use. You cannot find another word to go higher. There are no more superlatives left in the language once you say Elohim. There's nothing higher that you can speak of. God is introduced to us as a powerful being that we can barely imagine. Now think about this. Light never existed. Light be. And light was. It's incredible speaks a word that is so compelling that it has to come to pass. He creates. The word for creation is the word bora, out of nothing. He creates not using something. like So what you and I do when, when, when we create is we change matter to make it into something else. We knit, but we have to have wool and needles. We, 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 we paint, but we have to have a canvas. We have to have a brush, and we have to have paint. Imagine if you had Jedi powers and you could just bring creativity into being. You're looking at me like you haven't imagined that before, but I'm a very untalented man who spent a significant amount of time imagining what are the best talents that you could have. He, God doesn't use pre-existent matter. He, there, he, he, he can come ex nihilo out of nothing. There can be nothing, but God can make something with that nothing. By the way, that's why Genesis is the first gospel message that you'll read. The first gospel message you read is in the beginning, there was nothing, it was formless, it was void, it was dark and nothing was working. Life didn't exist yet. There was no light. Nothing could flourish. And we know in the heart and mind of God is a world that can flourish. And God doesn't say, hey, there's nothing there, so I better move on and find something. God hovers over the chaos by the power of his Holy Spirit and he speaks his word. And as he speaks forth his word, his hovering Holy Spirit shines his light and brings a world into being. Well, I thought that was pretty exciting. What about you? Maybe you've never lived in darkness before, but boy, if your life's ever felt dark, what you really need is the transcendent God to hover over that darkness and let his Holy Spirit come upon you and speak his word over your life and bring order to your chaos. So that's pretty cool. Um, Let's think about the transcendence of God. He brings light into being. You know, our universe has 10 billion trillion stars in it. 
Now, if you're trying to imagine what that's like, imagine a 10 followed by 21 zeros. That's how many stars we have in the universe. Let's know what Hugh Ross says. He's an acclaimed astrophysicist, and he says about the 10 billion trillion stars in the universe that every single one of them is necessary to sustain the atmospheric conditions of Earth for advanced life. If there were fewer than 10 billion trillion stars in the observable universe, nuclear fusion would be insufficient, and the only elements that would form would be hydrogen and helium. With more stars, all the elements would be heavier than iron, i.e. carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, would not form. Only in a cosmos with a finely tuned number, 10 billion trillion stars, can the essential elements for carbon-based life be produced. And so therefore the vast reaches of the universe then are not a great big waste of space, energy, mass, and time, but conditions brought into reality by the transcendent God so that you and I could stand here on this very day to worship him as carbon-based life forms. It's pretty cool, isn't it? Turn the person next to you and say, nanu, nanu. (laughs) So that's Genesis 1. Genesis 1 is about transcendence. Genesis 1 is about supreme awe. Genesis 1 is about unapproachable power and the God who can bring something into being just just by imagining it and saying it, his Holy Spirit can make it happen and he's unapproachable, unimaginable. I stop and I try to imagine it and I cannot because God is infinite and I am finite. Theologians call this the transcendence of God. God who is above us. God who is beyond us. God God who I, I couldn't possibly understand. I can know some stuff about God, but I cannot know God. The transcendence of God is awesome, unapproachable. Genesis 1. You flip the page and you go to Genesis chapter 2, though, and Genesis chapter 2 changes the direction of the story. It goes from being like the David Attenborough cosmic zoom out to the, to, to the fine-tuned microscope coming in real close. And then we read, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when the Lord God began to form them. And we turn to the very first act of the creative process in Genesis chapter 2, which is the formation of a human made in God's image. And Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, Elohim, God, made the heavens and the earth. But Genesis 2 changes the language and God is given a different name, a compound name. In Genesis chapter 2, the God that makes the the, the, the person is not Elohim, raw power. It is Yahweh Elohim. And God's name is introduced to us in a different way. Some translations say Yahweh God made the heavens and the earth. Yahweh God formed a man. Yahweh was the name that God revealed to Adam. The name by which he was known to Abraham and the patriarchs through the book of Genesis and lost to the people of Israel, but then revealed to Moses in a burning bush. Who are you, Lord, that we would know you? People of God had just drifted so far away from God that didn't even know God's name anymore. And rather than the God dwelling in unapproachable light, smiting and swatting, you've forgotten me, have an earthquake, God manifests himself to Moses on a sacred mountain, fire in a tree that is not consumed. And he says, I am who I am. That's the translation that you've heard. I am who I am. In the Hebrew, it's the name Yahweh. Yahweh. And, in the, and the word Yahweh is the covenant name of God. It, it, it's the, the personal name of God. See, to our church, I'm Pastor Tifi, but, but, but to my friends, I'm Ben. I have a personal name that is separate from my title and my function and my office. And when God reveals himself to Moses, he reveals himself as the great I am, that I am, that I am. Yahweh in Hebrew really means the self-sufficient one related to the Hebrew word for existence itself. I am he who exists. I am he who was, he who is, and he who is to come. I existed. I, I still exist and I will exist. I am very existence itself, but I am personal. Genesis 1, God is unapproachable. God is transcendent. I can't wrap my mind around it. But in Genesis 2, God comes as Yahweh God, as the covenant maker, as the relational God, and as the relationship God. Rather than standing and creating ex nihilo with raw power, God finds the dirt that he's already made. And then taking the guise of the potter, he makes a human out of the dust of the earth. And he comes close. How close? Real close. Because he comes down and he breathes his life-giving breath into Adam's nostrils. And Adam becomes a living being. 
Genesis 1, Elohim, the unapproachable, transcendent God. Genesis 2, the very near covenant, personal God. God who draws near. God who wants to breathe into you. God who wants to bring you to life and make you more alive than you've ever been before. God who takes man who is dirt and breathes into them and makes them spiritual dirt. Dirt, yes. Spiritual, you bet. God who is near God. This is what theologians call the imminence of God, the nearness of God. Now, here's what I've found is that all the way through our lives, we, we don't have a problem understanding that God is transcendent. We walk into a room and we don't see God in the room. We know he might be here. We often talk about God in ways where even if we know that God is present, we know that God is transcendent, so we don't leave a seat spare for him on the front row. We talk about God sometimes like he's not there. In fact, we find ourselves crying out to our pillow sometimes, God, where are you? Because we're used to the dealings of the transcendent nature of the God who is unapproachable, God who is awesome, God who we wouldn't dare come near, God we're afraid of. God hard to relate to. God mysterious in ways above and beyond ours and we would never imagine that he has something for us. I think as humans in our native tongue, we are deists. Deists believe God is upstairs doing his thing and we are downstairs doing our thing and God the great clockmaker wound up the universe and then let it go and here we are just struggling along on our own. And our orphaned hearts, our fatherless hearts, we, 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 we often need a reminder and we need a massage theologically to, to uncramp the, the, the fear and to uncramp the separation and to uncramp the alienation in our lives that wouldn't dare to believe that God wants to draw near to us. We're used to a God far away. Maybe we're more comfortable with a God far away. God far away from my mess and I'll blame you. God stay away from, from my fun so I can keep having it. A far off God. Our orphan hearts find it hard to understand that God is not just that transcendent God, but he is an imminent God that wants to draw so very near to each one of us and breathe into us that he becomes our life force. That existence himself comes into me and changes the very nature of the fabric of my being. We're we're comfortable with a God far off. But we often have a problem of seeing God as a God who is nearby. So God sends Jesus. Jesus. And you note in the story that Jesus himself lived a life of demonstration of the rule and reign of God, the kinghood of God, the kingship of God, the kingdom of God, drawing near to humanity. And as Jesus went about touching the untouchable and loving the unlovely and doing opening blind eyes and opening deaf ears and including the unincludable and raising the dead, even sometimes physically. Oh, God's going to smite the centurion and he heals his servant. Oh, the poor, the poor are like that because they don't deserve justice. If, if God loved them, they wouldn't be poor. God only loves the rich. And then Jesus takes all the poor out into the wilderness and feeds them with loaves and fishes. And in Jesus, his crazy explanation, what is he doing? Here's the explanation. Me and the Father of one. And if you've seen me, you've now seen the Father. Jesus is the ultimate demonstration of the imminence of God because in Jesus, God becomes imminent. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And not just a spiritual presence we can't understand, walking, talking, living, moving, breathing, touching Jesus. We could just stop there and have a little worship party, couldn't we? But you're wondering what this has to do with Psalm 139. And so am I. So Jesus comes and the religious people want to kill Jesus because especially in John's gospel where Jesus says in John chapter 14, oh, hey, me and the Father are one. Jesus will show us God. Hey, have I been among you so long you don't know me? The imminence of God is found in the very face and person of Jesus Christ. He's not a good teacher. He's not a good prophet. He is the imminent God come down to earth to dwell among us. God among us. This is why he got killed. He didn't get killed because he had a few controversial sayings. Actually, if you read the teaching of the first century rabbis, there was quite a diversity on what Judaism was. People were free to teach and believe all types of things, but they were not allowed to say, I'm God. And if you're looking at God, you're looking at me and if you're looking at me you're looking at God and what I'm doing God is doing in your life that's why he received worship 
That's why John's gospel is structured around seven discourses, seven famous statements where every one of them Jesus says, I am. The seven I am statements of Jesus, the culmination is in John chapter 8 where he looks at them and he says, before Abraham was even born, I am. And from that moment on, they sought to kill him. Because Jesus is so much more than just a great guy. Just a hippie poster we see from California with blonde wavy hair. Carrying little sheepies on his shoulders. He is the absolute manifestation and demonstration of the imminence of God. Now, here's a Christian discipline that I am still learning. And I have been studying this for 20 years as it's changed my life. And I'm still not good enough about it is I've got to keep remembering to picture the Yahweh of Scripture as the Jesus of the cross. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through to verse 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, the very image of God himself. If you want to know what God is like, you have to imagine Jesus. No other image of God lives up to the wonder of it, friends. No other image of God lives up to what is called Christianity. The resurrected suffering Christ is the very revelation of God himself. And sometimes we find ourselves finding it hard to imagine. Is God schizophrenic? There's like gentle Jesus, meek and mild, but then there's bearded Gandalf in the sky. And actually, we imagine that because we come from a pagan culture. Ever had a conversation with someone where you've been worried that you'd be struck by lightning and you kind of stepped back a little bit? Because it's not a scriptural image. It's an image that comes from the Greco-Roman pantheon, Zeus, the lightning bolt caster. Oh, I hope I don't get struck by lightning. Me too. That would mean Zeus is God and not Yahweh. (laughs) Big problems. Big problems if we're getting lightning struck. An old man in the sky, Italian Renaissance art, as beautiful as it is, doesn't help us because we get Italian artists raised with a Greco-Roman pantheon painting chapels with God, the old bearded Gandalf in the sky, and that's how we imagine God. But of course, we're supposed to not imagine God. So the Israelites were forbidden to make artwork and graven images and depictions of God, and he was always manifest in his, in his um, uh, tra- transcendent mag- majesty in unapproachable light, smoke and fire and no detail. I can describe for you the throne. I can describe for you the smoke. I can describe for you the glory. I can describe for you the creatures circling the throne. I can describe for you the powers and the principalities that have had the operations of the universe itself delegated to them, circling God's throne as a representation of the sun and the moon and the stars and the creatures and heaven and, and, and earthly reality itself. That's all of like Isaiah and Daniel and Jeremiah and then all the crazy stuff in Revelation. That's what it's about. It's about the spiritual beings that stand in representation of everything made circling the throne. And you never get a look at what's on the throne. Because God dwells as the transcendent God in unapproachable light. And the only one who ever gets a glimpse of what is on the throne is a centurion at the cross of Christ in Mark. Who looks at the last breath of the forgiving Christ who died a brutal death and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And that pagan centurion said, surely he is the son of God because he recognized a throne when he saw one, the imminent Yahweh coming close to us. The second person that got a glimpse of the throne was a fellow called John, John the Apostle. And he was preaching the gospel and the Roman Empire didn't like the gospel being preached because it undercut the sovereignty of Caesar and the majesty of the empire. And the glory of God was, was undermining everything about Caesar. So what did they do? They began to kill the Christians, saw them in half, um, you know, impale them, decapitate them, burn them alive, feed them to wild animals. And John the Apostle was sent to the island of Patmos, sent into exile auspiciously waiting the waiting room let's invent a really horrible way to make this guy die we don't have a horrible enough way yet so we'll chuck him on that island and we'll make sure that he stays there until we come up with the worst punishment imaginable that's what imprisonment is in the Roman Empire. There's no penal imprisonment. Well, you've got to do two years, then we'll let you out on good behaviour. No, no. Prison is the waiting room for death. That's why Paul said, I am Christ's prisoner. I am chained to him. He knows I'm going to die. The Roman Empire is chaining me up and putting me in jail in the book of Philippians so that I can you know, hopefully serve my sentence and then get let, let out one day. He knows these prison bars are my headstone. These prison bars are the last thing I'm going to see. 
But then you read the book of Philippians and you realise that the Apostle Paul doesn't focus on his bars. He looks through his bars to the waiting and watching world around him and writes letters of encouragement and sends them out to the Philippian church and leads his jailers to Christ. Those who he's chained to that are dragging him around end up giving their lives to Jesus Christ. And he celebrates even the Praetorian Guard, even the executioners for the king, even they've given their lives to Jesus. And you're supposed to have this sense of the excitement as Jesus, not just a transcendent fire off God, but now God, even and now God in your face, now God triumphant and majestic, but desperately reaching out for us. Desperately reaching out for us to bring us near so that we wouldn't just have a God that dwells in unapproachable light, but a near God who says, I am still the light of the world. That awesome song we sung tonight. You can light it up. <laughs> this is as loud as I can sing without embarrassing. You're my home girl, all right? <laughs> Which brings me to Psalm 139. Jesus and all of the verses in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul, especially in the book of Romans, read at some time. It's like, you know, you know, I, I used to be a, a druggie and an alcoholic and a drunkard. And one thing I really used to like to do is making a coffee and sitting out the back smoking my pipe. Won't tell you what was in my pipe, but something smokable, okay? And I sit there and I just have a real deep think about the universe. And now I can't do that anymore because I'm like saved and born again and redeemed by the blood of Jesus and holy. Um, But now what I do is I take the word of God and I sit out and I have a cup of coffee and I let my soul smoke. You know what I'm saying? Like I I just get God's word into me and I'm sitting there and I'm actually doing this. But you know really what I'm doing in my imagination? (laughs) I'm telling you, man, I am smoking what the Apostle Paul is selling when I'm reading the book of Romans. And like all good materials, the more you get it into you, the more it has an effect. Can I get a peace, man, in the house on this evening? You've got to get into God's Word. In Psalm 139... It's a psalm of David written towards the end of his life. The book of Psalms has approximately 75 of David's individual psalms and then psalms incorporated by numerous other parties. And Psalm 139 falls in the bracket that goes from Psalm 138 to Psalm 145. Then there's only five other psalms left at the end of the book. So this is David's latter day collection. These are the psalms not of David, the young warrior who's gone, you know, out there in the desert, kill all the enemies, God, yes, lay lions and tigers and bears. You know, that's not the psalm. This is the old David who's had a long time to reflect on life. Uh, David who's made some mistakes, hasn't he? David who's, who, who's got some shame, David who's got some pain, David who's understood what it's like to stand in the palace but to hide in a cave. David who understands what it's like to have someone chase you in fear for your life and David who understands what it's like to chase someone so that they're in fear for their life. David who understands what it's like to send everyone off to battle but he stood on the roof of his house perving at Bathsheba. David who understood what it was like to be a man after God's own heart and David who understood what it was like to be a man who would utterly break God's heart and break his family's heart and break the soul of the nation. And he's old and he's writing and he writes his reflection, Psalm 139. You've searched me, Lord. In the Hebrew, that word search means to comb through, to sift through. This is a psalm not about the imminent God who has had David on surveillance with security camera everywhere. You ever read a psalm like this one? God's with me all the time. God follows me. I can't get away from him. Man, big brother's watching. And we're we're more paranoid about it now in this day and age, aren't we? We teach our kids like internet security and put a piece of tape over your camera lens and all sorts of stuff. Why? Because we just never know who's watching and we don't want to be watched when we don't want to be watched. But David is not reflecting the God who is spying. This is not espionage. This is not divine manipulation. This is not unwanted divine intrusion. This is the God of super close relationality. And all of Psalm 139 is an extended meditation for David about the fact that all of my days, my mistakes, my highs, my lows, there's someone who's been closer to me than a brother. You have searched me, Lord. In the Hebrew, the word Lord is Yahweh. You have searched me, covenant God. You have searched me, close God. You you have combed through and sifted through my life, Lord. You know what David's saying? He's not saying, God, in your objectivity, sitting on your throne, far away from heaven, you knew all things. He's saying, God, you've been with me in my life. 
and you've combed through the details and you've been a witness to it and you've sat with me and we've talked and we know each other. You've sifted through. Now, I've never been on it, but there's this thing out there called Tinder. And it's not the stuff you collect when you want to light a fire. Although I've heard people get their fingers burnt in this process and all the same. And Tinder is predicated on a lie, and here's the lie, that if I put forward my curated and best, most polished self and publish it out there for the universe, then other people out there will scroll through or swipe whatever they do, and they will, um, and they will look at the objective curated dossier that I have um, performed, and they will say, well, then we should have a relationship. Now, the system is inherently flawed, of course, because guess what you believe? No one is honest in this situation. I'm talking like even the photos aren't real. Like there's filters that you put on. And, you know, I mean, I'm sorry, this is as good as Ben gets. I can't leave the house and put a filter on my face. Someone said to me the other day, hey, Pastor Ben, have you ever thought about having like a little work done? I said, I've already had it done. This is as good as it gets. There's no, there's no more work that could possibly be done. I'm sorry. It's inherently flawed, the process, because it causes pain. Because what happens is, is that we put our best foot forward. We, we put our highly, social media is all kind of like this, isn't it? We put our highly curated version of life out there for the world to see. But then people know the real us and they go, you don't wake up looking like that at all. <laughs> not at all. It's not reality. We can view from a distance, but it's not real. And David is celebrating the exact opposite of that. God, you have combed through my life. You have sifted through my life. Now, you know this because you have friends where you've combed through each other's life. We're not talking about going through each other's trash. We're sitting there about talking. What are your hopes? What are your fears? What are your dreams? What are your expectations? Where do you want to go in life? What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? Take off your mask. Take off your armor. Be real with me. And the people that you're closest to, you better believe why you're close is because because relationship is about intimacy and about time and about proximity. And if you can braid those three things together, you can have an intimate relationship where there's a mutuality. We know it about each other. We talk to each other. You know, you can just make it one-sided, but then you have a therapist, not a friend. A contract friend. But when you intertwine lives you you sift through you comb through. And then listen to what David says, God, you have searched me. God, you have combed through. Let me go Bible nerd on you just real quick. When he says you have searched me, he uses the Hebrew perfect. That means it is a completed action that would never require another repeat. All the work's being done. He's sifted through everything there is to sift through. He's combed through everything there is to comb through. There's now no secrets. There's no rock that hasn't been turned over. There's no unexplored nooks or crannies of David's life. God, you have searched me. You've done a complete job. You've sifted through all my life. And then listen to what he says. You have searched me, Yahweh, the close God, the covenant God, the God near me, the God that is imminent, the God that I see in the face of Jesus Christ. You've searched me. Listen to this. And you know me. You know me. It's the Hebrew word, yoda. Yoda. You shouldn't say what I'm about to say in other people's pulpits. God wrote a crazy story when he penned the pages of history. Here it is. Make a universe, make a virgin forest that has not been interfered with by pollution or fences or jackhammers or jet planes or whatever it is. Birds, stuff on the ground. It's like teeming, the air's teeming, the sea's teeming. Like there's this superlative language in the Genesis 1 narrative. This amazing universe crawling with life. And then God says, you know what I'm going to do with this great big aviary I made? I'm going to put two naked vegetarians in there. You cannot make this stuff up. And God puts Adam in and then Adam's there and then he's like hanging out with the animals and they're all filing past and God's like, hey, what are you going to call it? What are you going to name that one? Sue and Carly and a cow, you know. What are you gonna... And then he realizes none of them are a suitable partner for Adam. And so God puts Adam into a deep sleep. Sleep now, human. And he removes his rib. When I do this at weddings, it's my favorite thing. Because it's not just one rib. You ever imagine the story? God taking out maybe that spare floating rib down there if you're a martial artist and you've ever had a whack there. Boy, that hurts. No, no, that's not what God does. It's a rib that, like, you've got to go to the butcher shop and ask, can I look out the back? You've got to go to the Eka. Remember that? Where else would we catch the flu if we didn't go there? You go to go to the Eka. Okay. And if you go to the meat pavilion, then what you see is you see a side of beef hanging from a hook. Have you seen it? It's big, man. It's like the whole, all the, all the rib cage and the spine and the meat and the flanks are there and the back straps half hanging on. Getting hungry now. And, and, okay. And it's hanging there. And that is a side of beef. 
And in the Hebrew, it says that when God removed Adam's rib, he's talking about the entirety. He's talking about the whole side. God takes approximately half of Adam's rib cage. He takes half of his torso and he takes that away and he causes Adam. No wonder Adam's asleep. I mean, I've had blood drawn and I'm like, oh my gosh. Hey God, I might need that. Supposed to serve a protectionary function for my vital organs, Lord, and sun cream hasn't been invented yet. So he takes it and he incubates that into a fully grown woman. And he wakes Adam up and he wakes her up. And Adam looks at her. You know, this joke's coming, so I have to say it now. And he goes, whoa, man. And that's what she was called for the rest of her days. A woman. And Adam looks at her and he makes a recognition. No one's explained to him what a woman is. He just, what is that thing over there? Google it. A little bit like me, but, whoa, not quite like me. There's extra bits and less bits. And there's... He doesn't do it. Adam comes face to face with this naked woman. And he makes a recognition, which for scripture is a sacred recognition. This is where marriage comes from. God's way. He looks at her and he says, you, you, you you're bone of my bone. You, you're flesh of my flesh. And scripture says, for that reason, they will leave their father and their mother's house and they will join together as one flesh. And if you're a married person, you've got to understand what it is you have with this person that you're married to. If you're engaged, you've got to understand what it is you have with the person that you're getting married to. It is when you stand together and you formulate a sacred covenant between each other, you and them and Yahweh who presented you together watching on. You, you and me, we are going to be one. Life is now no longer complete if I don't join with you. And when we join with each other, me and you, we become a brand new thing. It's a sacred recognition. It's a sacred reuniting. It's a sacred joining up of that which was not the same until bam, God joins you together and makes something brand new out of it. I mean, that's exciting. That's exciting. Danielle, it's exciting. I'm glad to be married to you. Okay. So then it says, after this sacred recognition, and they are joined together by the God of the universe. Then Adam knew Eve, and she bore a son. And that's when the Bible gets crazy, because knowing doesn't just mean knowing, if you know what I'm saying. Okay? Adam sees this woman and he knows her. Of course, he measured her height and her weight and he looked at her hairstyle and worked out what particular genus of the species pool she was part of. That's objective knowledge. That is the uh, ascertainment of data. That is, that, that is mental facts and figures. Can I tell you something? You can read the grade nine biology book all you want. No one's having no babies just through reading the book. You know what I'm saying? You do know what I'm saying, do you not? Otherwise there'll be no kids church in this church in a few years time. But Adam, he knew Eve. And this is powerful because for the rest of Scripture, this word takes on a special quality. I'm sorry, I know it's awkward, but it just has to be said. If you, I didn't write it. God wrote it. Like, take it, send it to the complaints department of the author. <laughs> Adam becomes one with his wife. And his oneness is so deep that they are now one. They are joined together. It is deep relationship. Okay. And because it is deep relationship, something is birthed that changes the world as a result of that relationship. They act on each other. It has been said by therapists, especially sexologists, that there is no deeper way for two humans to connect than the art of sexual intercourse because of the way their neurons and their souls and their heart and their psyche are fused together. And that, by the way, is why we're really, really careful with that type of thing. And all the way through scripture, this type of knowing that Adam knew Eve and she had a son type of knowing will be used metaphorically for God knowing us. To sexualize it is to cheapen it. To sexualize it is to miss the profound nature of the life-transforming reality 
of God, the imminent one, God, the creator, God who speaks a word, God who knows and sees everything. It's to miss the point. But the type of knowledge David says here, God, you knew me, is the type of knowledge Adam had of need. The knowledge that is born out of not just objective facts and figures, but subjective experience. This is knowing and being known. This is let's join together. Let's have a relationship. Know my name. I know your name. You and me, we are now one and we are something different than what we are before because our joining makes the world a different place. And David says, Lord, you have searched me and now you know me. It's not a knowing that comes from a far off God. It's a knowing that says, I am so close. I know you. My little sister, I love her. People thought we were twins our whole life. And um, she had this habit that whenever we were at parties or whenever we were at public things, if the person, you know when you go to a party and you find yourself in conversation with someone who's just crazy? <laughs> Ever had it? Ever had it? So, so if you're talking to my sister and, and um, she's talking to someone who's like just crazy and you walk up, my sister will go, Ben, Ben, you have to meet my friend. I'm not going to use the name. <laughs> just in case their family are in the room. You have to meet my friend Bob, right? And this is what she'd do. Just the way that she said that, I knew exactly what she was talking about. Now, I wasn't a believer, so I don't think it was a word of knowledge. I also didn't have a manual. Check step 42. When your sister calls you over, she's talking to someone crazy. It's just that we had lived together so long, we got in all the trouble together as kids. We did all the naughty stuff and had parents chase us and all, you know, got each other in and out of trouble all the time. And then when we were in our early 20s, as soon as she said, Ben, you've got to meet this guy, I knew straight away, he is going to be crazy. Because I have spent so much time and interface and relationship with that girl that I know what she's thinking before she thinks of man. And she's the same with me. Sometimes someone will say something on my Facebook and she doesn't even comment on Facebook. She just texts me direct. Oh my gosh, did you see what mum said on your Facebook thing? Oh my goodness. And she knows what I'm thinking. It's scary, isn't it, Danielle? When Danielle first met us, if there was a reason that she wouldn't marry me, it was because my family are a bunch of freaks. It was not comfortable, was it? With my sister and me having telepathic communication across the table. And my sister's like, you should marry this girl. And I was like... Roped her in by a country mile. That's the type of knowledge David's talking about. Not the transcendent God that objectively knows everything. The imminent God that knows you out of relationship subjectively. Subjectively. It's an incredible thing to think. Listen what it says. God, you know when I sit and when I rise. And all the way through now there's these couplets. You know this and then you know this. When I sit and when I rise. When I sit is, you know when I abide, you know when I dwell. That means actually what it really means is I'm not just like taking a seat like tonight. We sat down, we stand up. You know when I sit, you know when I stop. But you know when I get back up again. Yeah. Ever have times in life where you give up? That's what that really means. You know when I'm giving up, God. You know when I'm plonking down. You know when I'm plonking down. But you know when I rise. He's there. Subjective. Relational. I'm, I minister and live in the thriving metropolis of Alice Springs. It's a hard place. It's crime. and man, I get assaulted. How, how often, Danny? Not, not counting when you do it, but other times. A lot. People always want to fight me. I was there having sushi with my kids and Danny, I was paying the bill. She's good like that. And we're waiting out the front. And then some dude comes, this massive big fella, comes to beat up the proprietor of the sushi business. And I'm standing like a metre away with my sweet little daughters and my pink flamingo shirt on. <laughs> and, you know, like a beard makes you look tough, but a pink flamingo, flamingo shirt... It weights it towards the other end. Not a threat, don't, not a concern for anyone. So this guy just comes straight up and he starts pounding on this fella. And I'm like there with my kids and I'm thinking, what's the appropriate response here? And I prayed, oh God, God didn't answer that prayer yet. So I had to go to the next step. You know, okay, maybe I am the answer to this prayer that I prayed. How about that one for God? And so I get it and I jump in between these two, two like fighting parties. Well, one guy wasn't fighting. He was just getting victimized. This sushi shop owner who should owe me free sushi for the rest of my life for this. I, I push them apart and I jump in and I paste a big smile on my face like a tourist. And I say, nah, 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 mate, we're not doing that today. We're not doing that. It's all right, buddy. It's all right. And I start pushing this guy off him. And the sushi shop owner guy goes, thank you very much. And boom, gets in the shop and slides the the door shut and locks it and the only thing is left me facing this violent character with my big smile on my face 
And then my 14-year-old daughter laughing her head off. Hey, girls, look at Dad. He's trying to be tough, but he's in his flamingo shirt. (laughs) And it just burst the atmosphere and everybody went back to their lives. A little while ago, I was at um, midnight called out by the police to our church because kids have tried to rob in. And I was like, oh, man, this sucks. So I'm driving at midnight, stumbling through, you know, meeting the police officers there. And we have to spend all this time. And it just is a grind everywhere you go. There's crime. People pull knives on you. People throwing bottles at you. Cars getting burnt in the car park. I know I'm really selling it as a great tourist destination. So bring your Humvee when you come. And so people don't last in Alice Springs. What happens is people come for a couple of years or a couple of weeks or a couple of months, but they burn out. They burn out. So many things. You're in the desert. It's dusty. It's dry. And it's difficult. Ministry is hard. And and people come, and they come with bright eyes and bushy tails walking down the street like like that lady in The Sound of Music before she actually met those Von Trapp kids. And then she's like, wait a minute. I was kicking my heels a minute ago. Next minute, I'm like, we're back off to the nunnery. And so our church has a history, people stay three years, boom, they crash, five years, they crash, four years, two years. In 25 years, no one's made it past five years. This is the end of our sixth year. And I've got to tell you, Danny and I, we've been processing this year. Can we keep going? Can we keep going? Our wonderful people we're connected to, one of our youth pastors, brought him on team. This is a young, young guy. He worked with us for six years, getting promoted, growing in ministry. He was our youth pastor. Then he was our pastoral care director. Big things ahead. And I'm half thinking, I can get off the slide soon because I got myself a successor. And I'll be like, out there. And he'll be there. And then, like that scene in The Wizard of Oz, when the house falls on him, that's what happened to me. Our youth pastor concluded, you know what ministries helped me realize? I'm going to join the police force. <laughs> so you go after all of our ministry training, which you basically are a police officer if you're doing ministry in Alice Springs, because crazy stuff is happening to you all the time, and it grinds on you, and it's tiring. And a few months ago, I said to Danielle, ah, I'm tired, babe. I'm actually, I'm feeling so much grief in my heart about just the, we've won hundreds of people to Christ in Alice Springs, and the The environment just is a grind. And so we have waved and prayed goodbye to over 400 people that we've led to Jesus over the last number of years. They've concluded, we've got to get out of here, man. We can't say, we're going, we're moving to Hawaii. We're moving to, you know, we're we're moving to Flockton Street. Way better, way better. And and the grief and the, the layering effect of the fatigue. And I was saying to Danielle, honey, I just don't think I can do this anymore. I texted a couple of friends, I need your prayers. I'm really struggling at the moment. That was me. David says, you know when I sit. You know when I give up. Listen to what he's saying. It's not God is subjectively aware when I do it. God is with me when it happens. You know when I sit. You know when I fall down. You know when I plonk down. You know when I give up. But you know when I arise. That means you know I will arise. You know. You discern my going out. And my lying down, that word lying down means to sleep with somebody. You discern it. You discern my going out, my path, my way of life. You discern who I'm sleeping with. Think about that. It's a weird thing. It's like, does God, what is David doing under those covers with Bathsheba? I need to discern what is going on there. That's not what he's saying. You discern my laying down. It's a euphemism for interface. You you sift it. You winnow it. You separate the wheat and the chaff, David says. You even know who I'm sleeping with. You discern it. You know what that means? That when God is with David in his highs and in his lows, when he's laying down, when he's giving up and plonking himself down, when he rises up again in that that new day, that fresh sense of hope, when he's walking around, you're my paths. God discerns the tracks that I'm making through life. He discerns who I'm sleeping with. Anyone else here cannot abide country music? (laughs) <laughs> surprisingly less people than I thought. I, 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 I've never really liked country music. Songs about whiskey and tractors and dogs. Basically, all those things eventually leave you. Um, it's weird. But now what's happened is I live in the bush, and I travel to bush places, and I spend time with bush people, and you get a feel for their life. You get a feel for the slow grind. You get a feel for the dirt under the fingernails, the sunburn, the hard life. There's the, it's not like, you know, they're, they're not like rich. They're not like billionaires out there, you know, having a big day spa out there in the bush. It's a hard, tough grind. And you get a drought, or you get disease, or you get something else, tragedy in your family. It is a slow grind that will grind you into the dirt. 
And when you come near to those people and you understand what is it makes them tick, and especially that most of their life is just terror and tragedy and hardship, you listen to country music a different way, with an ear. You really do, believe it or not, Pastor Andy, with an ear that says, this is them giving voice to their pain. And now because I've drawn near to the people, even something I don't like much explains itself. Now, I know why country music exists, because I know country people. David says, you, you discern my path, you discern my lying down. God says, David, I don't like it much, but I understand exactly what's going on in you, in your pain and in your tragedy and in your frailty and in your failure. God knows, and he's there, and he's not away. He's near, sifting, combing, present. I'm going to finish, but listen to this. You discern my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. Okay. God knows everything about you. Scary? Listen to the mystery. Listen to the mystery. You hem me in behind them before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I, it's lofty. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn and I settle for the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. If I get myself totally off track, if I run the other direction, guess what I run into? The present Yahweh relational God who knows me and he's still with me no matter what I've done, no matter what turns I've done, no matter whether I've given up, no matter whether I've gotten up, no matter I've laid down with someone or got myself lost in the reeds or if I've gone to the other side of the universe, you're still there, God, and you're leading me and you're guiding me and you're with me and that is something I cannot understand. It's too long. He doesn't say, God is imminent and he's so far off, I cannot attain it. He says, God knows everything about it and he still surrounds me Amen. with his love. Amen. God puts his hand on me and he lays his hand on my life. And even if I try to run, he's still with me. I can't understand that. Because you and I, we know that we are made in God's image, but most of the time we make God in our image. And we fear deep in the depths of our soul that God is just like us. And if someone did all those things to us, we would not be there. We would not still be there for them. They run away. We'll run out of steam. How far will I pursue? How much will I forgive? How, will I still lay hands? I'll lay hands, all right. <laughs> David says, I can't understand you, God. Not, not because you're imminent. That makes sense. Because you're near. And, and, and you're with. And you surround me and you lay your hand on me. I can't climb that mountain, God. That's something I, I can't get. If I say darkness will hide me and light become night around me, deep despair. Even the darkness won't be dark to you and the night will shine like day for darkness is as light to you, Lord. You created me. And then he turns the conversation. God, the artisan. God, the artist. God, the one who created me, knit me together. God's a knitter. You made me as your artwork, God. And then listen to what he says. Your eyes saw my unfilmed body. Verse 16. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. I'm on board with everything else in the psalm but that bit. I come from a broken family. A family was just racked with violence. In my youth, I encountered terrible abuse, physical abuse and violence and injustice and deep shame. It caused so much pain, it literally fractured my personality. I was in my 30s before I recovered from it. I was in my late 20s before I could look in the mirror without looking at myself going, God, if you're real, let me get hit by a bus today. My life was just pain and that's why I was a drug addict, that's why I was an alcoholic, that's why I was snorting and smoking and sleeping around the universe and not because I liked partying and not because I was a rebel, I was a person in pain, I just wanted to feel something and what I sure didn't want to feel was that pain and that shame anymore. And so when I read this, all the days ordained for me were written in your book, that's a hard pill for me to swallow. You planned that? Did you plan that, God? I know, I... 
I look back now and I can say amen to everything David has said. He was with me. He has been with me. I could not outrun God, even in my darkest dark. It was like light to God. I look back now over my biography. Bam, I can see God there. And these last 20 years since I said yes to the gospel message, he's been with me, healing, restoring, laying his hand upon me, surrounding me, hemming me in. He has changed everything. Danielle knew me before and she knows me now. Ordained for me. I told you before, I've had a bit of an allergy to that psalm. This is why. Ordained for me. Written in your book before anything happened. You wrote that, God. I gotta tell you, my feelings are hurt. Sometimes when I'm chilling, I take the scriptures and I go back to the Hebrew of it because it's my new way of like a non-addictive behavior where I can like smoke something or chill on something, but I just do it mentally by like going through God's word. And I did business with this psalm to get to the bottom of the aversion I had to the idea. If you go into the Hebrew, this word, all the days ordained for me is the Greek word fashioned, fashioned. And it's the, sorry, the Hebrew word. And it's a Hebrew word, which means artwork. And it makes sense in this passage. David has changed thoughts. You know me, you're with me, no matter where I can, I can't run from you. And then you formed me in my mother's room. You made me, I am your art. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. God, you're an artist. God, you're an artisan. And he changes. And all the days, some translations say it better, fashioned for me were written in your book. All the days crafted for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. That word book, it's used 186 times in scripture. And in almost every one of those times, a couple was talking about some other thing that somebody wrote, almost every one of those times, 186 times, it is talking about the word of God, about God's instruction, about God's Torah, about the book of the law, about the book of the Psalms, the book of the covenant. And here's what David is saying, and this is why I find the word ordained a terrible translation. Some translations do not use that word for this reason. All the days fashioned for me were written in your book. David is not saying God planned your tragedy, that God planned your pain, that he pre-wrote. So let me think of what's the worst thing I can do to Ben Tiffey. Oh, this is a good story. God is not Stephen King. All the days that were artwork... All the days that were the work of God, all the days that were God's artistic generation of his goodness. They're written in his book before any of them came to be. You know what David understood? David understood my past has pain, my past has shame, my past has injury that I've done and that's been done to me. But I can look at my past and I can even look at my future and say, but in all of that, some days were artwork. Some days were craft. Some days, man, some days are stones, but some days are diamonds. It's the great prophet John Denver said. When I look at my life and see what was the handiwork of an artisan, it's the stuff that comes from his word. It's the stuff that was written in his book. And David says, when I take my life and I make my life correspond to the words of this book, Those days are artwork. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says, For we are God's worksmanship. The Greek word for worksmanship is the word poiema. It's where we get our word poem from, the work of an artist. We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I think when Paul was musing on this passage, he was musing on Psalm 139. The language overlay is too clear. David says, my days that were your handiwork, they correspond to your word. And then John says, in the beginning was the word, but it's not a book. It is the one that was with God in the beginning and came as God with us. The word became flesh. So let me leave you with this encouragement. God is near in the person of Jesus. And when we draw near to him, he draws near to us. And when our lives correspond to Jesus, the word, then God makes artwork out of the days of our lives. And that's what happened to me. Let me close in prayer by praying for your church. Father, I pray my friends in this room would just leave tonight with a sense of your nearness, a sense of your goodness, a sense of the fact that you are close. And the you that is close is Jesus the King who came to make God relatable to us, the God we could 
live with, the God that could live and move in us and in him we could have our being. And I know in this room, Lord, there's questions. I know there's been hurt. I know there's been shame. I know there's been pain. There may even be doubts. But I pray everyone in this place, Father, would have courage tonight to learn from David's reflection. God, you are so near. And that they would have the courage to turn their lives over to Jesus, the word, and see you make artwork out of that life and every day in it. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope this message encouraged or perhaps even challenged you in your Christian faith. Our pastors meet regularly with people to pray and support them and we extend this invitation to you. Please let us know if we can contact you to offer support. Simply call the office or visit nexuschurch.com.au.